Hey, you're listening to Hear This Idea, a podcast showcasing new thinking in philosophy, the social sciences, and effective altruism. In this episode, we talk to Sam Hilton, who is the research director at Charity Entrepreneurship, the coordinator at the UK's all-party parliamentary group for future generations, and if that wasn't enough, also a research affiliate at the Centre for the Study of Existential Risk. As Sam's bio might make obvious, it is just really cool getting to speak to someone who is involved in both the near-termism and long-termism sides of EA. We begin the interview by talking about charity entrepreneurship, which is an incubator scheme to create high-impact nonprofits. We talk about why there are these gaps to create new, effective charities in the first place, and how this compares to expanding GiveWorld's existing standout charities. We then talk about the work that Sam and his research team do in going about to find these new high-impact opportunities year on year. And then lastly, we talk about what it's like going through this program as a participant. For listeners interested, Charity Entrepreneurship is currently recruiting for its new cohort, and the deadline to apply is March 31st. Topics this year range from road safety in lower middle income countries to meta charities like exploratory altruism. We touch on these topics in the interview itself, but if you want to find out more, we highly recommend you check out the Charity Entrepreneurship website and consider applying. Our interview then turns towards long-termism, and we talk a bit about what this entrepreneurship incubator scheme might look like for long-termist ideas. We then talk a fair bit about Sam's experiences and thoughts on long-termist policy, and that includes a fair bit of discussion on the well-being of future generations bill that is currently being discussed in the House of Commons. This is a topic that we'll hopefully follow up shortly with another episode talking to Lord Bird, who is the sponsor of this bill. But I think this is like an interesting take to maybe listen to first. But for now, a big thank you to Sam Hilton for joining us. And without further ado, here's the episode. Uh, so let's dive in. So you are Director of Research at Charity Entrepreneurship. Sam, what is Charity Entrepreneurship? Uh, charity Entrepreneurship is an incubation scheme for the charity sector. So let's say that you wanted to found a new charity to make the world a better place, uh, you could come to us and we would help you do that. Uh, And applications for people to come found charities with charity entrepreneurship are currently open. Um, So that's a sort of really short version of what it is and what it's doing. Cool. Let's do the long version now. So you mentioned applications for what I presume is the incubation program that you run. So mm-hmm. tell us about how that's structured. What kind of support can you get if you apply for that? So I work on the ideas team, uh, which means that my job is to come up with ideas for the best things that anyone could be doing to make the world better. And we tend to do this by choosing particular cause areas uh, that we think are really important and then sort of diving deeply into those areas, listing hundreds of potential ideas and trying to find out the best ways to do good. And that gets turned into these reports that should guide any potential founders to start these ideas and make reality happen. We then reach out to people who we think can found charities, uh, especially people who could start some of our own ideas, although people with their own ideas are also welcome to apply to the scheme, bring in some really top talent. We have thousands of people apply from all sorts of backgrounds. It's not just people who have run things in the past. We think lots of people can found charities and they come into the incubation program eight weeks of like solid hard work like an in-depth training course on what it's like to run a charity sort of tinder for co-founders i think these are all like different ways it's been described you basically do like a task each day with another person or two people 
and that task will help you learn how to found a charity. Uh, so that might be create a website for a new charity in a day, set up a like co-founder agreement for your new organization, work out like what country this particular project should focus its attention on using a weighted factor model. Uh, and you'll do this with like another person or two other people in little teams. And by doing these tasks, not only do you learn a lot and you get feedback, but you meet people and potentially find people who you'd be willing to co-found an organization with. That's the first five weeks. And then the second half, you're matched to potential co-founders and ideas that you're excited about, uh, people that you'll be keen to work with and develop a like more concrete plan for what your organization could do. And this is then sent off to our seed funding network and projects tend to get grants like up to like nearly $200,000 is probably like around the biggest amount to get their project started. And then, then that's it. Then you have a charity and you have some money and you have a co-founder and you can go out and make the world better. And we'll keep supporting you for the first year or two. But at that point, you are a founder. Awesome. Well, maybe this is jumping the gun a little bit, but I'm curious to hear any any success stories you want to highlight from the incubation program so far? Yeah. Not every charity succeeds. Uh, there are success and failures. But like one thing that I have learned since coming to Charity Entrepreneurship is just the charities that are doing well are amazing. Like The people running them are amazing. There's just some like really like incredible work going on here. Um, so an interesting one. Uh, we did a report on lead exposure, and it causes nine hundred thousand deaths a year, um, and a load of other like negative impacts on the world, and. Uh, the Lead Exposure Elimination Project uh, was a CE charity entrepreneurship founded charity. And uh, within like a couple of months of starting a charity, they got the government of Malawi to make plans to get rid of lead in paint, uh, protecting 215,000 kids. Um, there's just an amazing start to something new. Like just within a year, like changing such a major part of world policy. Uh, and I'm super excited to see where they go next because they're still, what, a year and a half old. So that's one story that excites me. That's one of the things I was going to ask about is how long should you expect to have to wait before you're you know, really able to have like a real legible impact on the world? So like I was running my own project, which we'll talk about later, uh, doing work in the UK on like long-term thinking uh, in policymaking in Parliament and future generations policy. And I think it took about a year and a half till we had our first big policy win. Um, and since then, there's been another one roughly every year or so. So, or maybe a bit more frequent than that. Uh, so it seems pretty achievable to be like doing stuff fairly quickly once you get started. I'm, I'm curious to hear maybe the like other side uh, of this. So when we think about entrepreneurship, I think it's like often characterized as like kind of taking this like hits-based approach, right? Where like you get some like really, really big successes, but you also get like lots of things that go to like null or um, like failures before you're able to like 
um, get a charity or get a business that's like really working and stuff. Uh, and I'm wondering, yeah, like what does that look like at charity entrepreneurship as well? Like, do you have kind of a, a failure rate um, of, of like charity entrepreneurship, like cohorts? And, and what do like people learn from this? Two fifths of the charities have like done super well um, and maybe been the unicorns of the charity sector. Um, uh, potentially like on in the direction of becoming the strongest charities in their relative fields. About two-fifths progress but remain fairly small or it's really hard to measure their cost effectiveness and we just don't know. Uh, and then about one-fifth uh, shut down in the first 24 months. Um, I think... Um, yeah, I think co-founders, like having a really good co-founder who you can work with uh, is important. Uh, often this is a like issue that can cause a charity to shut down. Um, circumstances changing, like in particular, a bunch of charities created just before COVID hit, like really struggled. Um, they had plans and then they couldn't really manifest those plans, uh, especially trying to work abroad. Um, so yeah, it, it won't always go to plan. Two two fifths sounds like an awful lot, though, right? Like, why? Or at least that's like a lot higher than I would kind of assume. Uh, uh, like, kind of going in and stuff. Like, why is that number so high? Is that just because you select for like really good entrepreneurs, or is it um, something just about like charity entrepreneurship, like as a field itself? Like, yeah, why why is it so high? I think, uh, and obviously, maybe I have some sort of bias here. I think the organization just has an amazing process, like we research and find really good ideas um, that we're like fairly confident can like drive a lot of change in the world. We like recruit uh, excellent talent uh, and uh, we sort of put that together and just the whole process seems like an effective way of driving change. Yeah, I would say as well, um, not everyone who comes on the incubation scheme necessarily like founds a charity. So this is two-fifths of the people who found charities. It's quite possible you would join the incubation scheme and not create something. And for those people, we like try and direct them towards something else. So a lot of people might come on the scheme and then end up at a senior job at a charity that's already been founded, um, may even end up working for charity entrepreneurship um, or potentially like getting a job elsewhere that we can recommend them for. Um, so people often end up with their next step, uh, but it's not always founding a charity. But of those that found, a lot of them are successful. I'm, I'm curious to hear as well, like, I guess the case for entrepreneurship more broadly. So I think like lots of EAs, uh, like when they think about like global health and well-being, we'll think, well, okay, well, hasn't this kind of already been solved? Like GiveWell already has these like standout charities that we know to be like the most cost effective, right? Like these are malaria, deworming, um, like things like that. Like what is the case for um, creating something new that like might not be on that list? Um, yeah, like why, why is that like a high impact career path as opposed to working for one of these like existing charities or um, like earning to give um, to, to one of these charities? Yeah, so for an individual point of view, you can have more impact if you start something uh, counterfactually. Uh, less people are willing to start something new. Uh, it's a rarer sort of skill to have or thing to want to do, uh, so people don't do it. Uh, charities can tend to hire good talent to work in those places. 
uh, but not necessarily uh, find someone to like run something that doesn't yet exist. Um, so uh, that's a good reason to like found a charity. Imagine if like Rob Mather, who started AMF, had just joined like another charity and just being a senior person there, there would be no against my foundation in the world. Uh, so his impact would have just been a lot less. So if we can have people who are aiming to like create organizations that are going to be at the very top of their field, uh, then that's worth doing. Um, and then also from a point of view, personal point of view, even if they don't, that experience of trying to like create an organization that's going to be at the very top of a field is going to teach you a lot. It's going to be like a really good like way to move into maybe being a, in a senior role at an existing organization, if that's the direction you want to go. Uh, if you don't quite have the same level of success as some of these existing charities. Uh, and then from like a more like theoretical point of view, like why have new organizations at all? Um, firstly, we don't yet know the best ways of doing good in the world. We're still exploring this. Uh, there's a lot of value and information of being like, uh, what can we find out there? So obviously, GiveWell recommends the Against Malaria Foundation. Um, it recommends deworming. Uh, but these are both like within the same pool, ballpark of global health charities. Uh, we're starting charities that are working on policy change, such as affecting uh, lead interventions. We're starting charities uh, that do things similar to what GiveWell charities do, but in a slightly different way. Uh, we're starting charities uh, in other areas like mental health or um, health security. Uh, so, like, yeah, there's so much to learn from trying this and from these kinds of experiments. Uh, and then uh, beyond that, um, the like, there's different levels of cost effectiveness. And I think although Give World charities are going to be the best charities that can absorb hundreds of millions of pounds, we may well be creating uh, a one end of the spectrum. Uh, we can create charities that are more effective than Give World top recommended charities, but perhaps like with less ability to scale, maybe they'll never need more than a few hundred thousand pounds a year and will never be Give World recommended for that reason, but might, because they're driving policy change, be much more impactful. Uh, and then at the other end of the spectrum, potentially, and we've not yet done this, there's scope to create charities that are maybe less effective than GiveWell's top recommended, but potentially have like much more room to scale. Uh, so that's something that we might look at in future, so highly scalable organizations. So uh, GiveWell's top recommended charities fall within a certain range um, in terms of scalability and cost effectiveness, and there's opportunities outside that range. Um, and then finally, I just think we're playing a part in creating a world where new organizations in the charity sector are created, can exist, can thrive. Like this is how it works in industry. This is how like the startup world works. We have new organizations. Uh, they do great things and the best ones really do well and the others don't. And there's change and the top uh, new organizations uh, make the most money and, and that doesn't necessarily happen in the charity sector like the top charities in the UK have been almost the same uh, decade upon decade so having a system whereby new organizations can start and actually have a chance of thriving seems like 
a general like improvement to the sector as a whole. So maybe to like try and repeat this back to just make sure that like I'm understanding it right. Like it seems that you're describing that there are like just lots of different like channels um, of impact. Like some of this is like more on the like meta end of just like being able to like build skills um, of participants going through, which might be like useful for like whatever they go on to do um, afterwards. And it's just like good to like build talent. Um, then there's this like other like meta angle of just like finding new information. So uh, when we think about like evidence-backed charities, right? Like the emphasis on having evidence to do there. And often you don't have that evidence until people actually go out and try these things. Um, or at least it can like update us in pretty significant ways to, to what we thought before. And then there's like on this, I guess, like direct impact side, there are like these two arguments. One, which is there might just be loads of like low hanging fruit, like GiveWell maybe looks at charities which are like really big in scale and can absorb like lots and lots of funding. But that isn't to say that there are like loads of like small areas which are like neglected for like whatever reasons, um, which are like just as impactful uh, potentially, but just haven't been done yet because they're almost like um, too small um, as, as like um, areas for like big funders to care about, but should be cared about by, by individuals um, looking to have an impact. And then there is this thing of like, well, maybe these things can scale and they can compete on this end. And this field is like still new uh, and it's like still worth like trying out new things in this kind of like competitive landscape that you said. Does, does that sound about right as like kind of summarizing what you said there? Uh, yeah, this sounds about right. Um, I would add as well that uh, we start charities beyond just the kinds of things that GiveWell would recommend, um, like working on meta-organizations or working on policy or working on mental health. Um, so there's another reason on top of that. Right, right, yeah. Yeah, that, that's a really important point, like different criteria for success beyond maybe uh, like dallies and, and what can I have you. I just want to pick up on another thing you mentioned, Sam, and try saying it back as well, because maybe I'm getting it wrong. But you said something like, um, uh, look, for-profit companies, they turn over and, and just fail more often than non-profits. And the reason is pretty obvious, right? It's like, if you're not making money, that's a really clear signal that you might be better off just trying something else and you just can't sustain what you're doing right now. That's unlike in the non-profit world, where perhaps there are occasionally fewer really strong signals that what you're doing is less good than something else. And so it's easier to sustain a non-profit uh, for longer. For that reason, you get lots of startups, new companies in the for-profit world to like enter into the other end of that turnover just because they're like, you know, as a big kind of vacuum when companies fail. But if there's less of that in the non-profit world, you kind of got to realize that you've got to do that yourself and like make those startups happen on your own and just recognize that there's like a big opportunity there, which isn't naturally going to get filled with like incentives from outside or something. Does that roughly make sense? Yeah, I don't know what the like ideal amount of startups to lead to like a really functioning ecosystem where like really good organizations exist. Uh, but I think the charity world does seem quite stagnant. Like the top charities mostly thrive based off their brand, not based off the impact they demonstrate they have. Uh, and they mostly remain just the top charities. And there's not a lot of chop and change. And hopefully the Effect Altruism community can change that through a combination of donating based on like actual impact and effectiveness and through creating startup charities that have at least some chance of thriving and doing really well and potentially being better than the current top charities. Uh, and that ecosystem seems like a really valuable thing for the world to have uh, within the charity space. 
I can imagine it could seem a bit callous from some perspective to say things like, oh, I think you know, the optimal failure rate for nonprofits should be higher <laughs> from like an altruistic perspective. Um, but also that's not a crazy thing to say because one read on what you're saying there is, look, I just think there are so many like far better things that could exist. Like we could do even better than this. And if that involves like taking some people from existing nonprofits and moving them into like newer, newer things and just trying lots of new things, um, that could be great too. So I guess, yeah, it's worth just appreciating that this isn't necessarily like a kind of extremely like cold-hearted thing to say. Whenever I've been running a nonprofit, I've always had in my mind that the aim of what I'm doing should be to close down. There's a problem I'm trying to solve and I want that problem to be solved. And when it's solved, there should be no need for what I'm doing to exist. Like that's like what nonprofits should try and do. Uh, and, uh, Ultimately, we as a world have limited resources. And I don't think it's cold to say we need to make sure that those resources can do as much as possible. We need to help as many people as possible. We need to like care enough to have this kind of like ecosystem where difficult decisions are being made because that's what's needed to do as much as we can do uh, and care for the people that we can care for. I wanted to like add in uh, this like question around how you understand GiveWell and stuff. And like maybe one way to frame this is you mentioned before, like shifting from like charity brands to actually looking at like what impact they're doing, right? And like GiveWell seems like a really good example of like changing this broader conversation um, around charity towards them. Uh, but then also on this point of like bigger versus like smaller opportunities as well, as I understand it, right? Like GiveWell makes these like top standout charity recommendations, but they also have this thing called the Maximum Impact Fund, which does also fund, right? Like a lot smaller initiatives and a lot more opportunities that happen to appear, right? Like kind of year from year and um, also includes these these smaller things, which I, if I understand it right, like might also include some of the areas that, that charity entrepreneurship is, is looking to explore. Two of our launch charities have received GiveWell grants uh to date um and uh we think that one of our charities fortify health has a chance of becoming a givewell uh top charity so yeah we do create charities that get that funding and i think that is valuable uh and i think that uh givewell's top recommended charities are restricted to being charities that can absorb a certain large amount of funding and um, you will find things that are more effective in terms of cost effectiveness for the world um, if you like remove that restriction. Uh, and often those things will be smaller and like harder to scale, but potentially having a much greater impact per dollar put in. Um, so making sure that those things exist and are well-funded should be something that um, the Effective Autism community focuses on. Um, and I think there are opportunities for smaller donors in particular within the community to find those smaller projects that are perhaps even more cost effective than the most well-known recommended projects and help them thrive. Um, yeah. And also the other thing about GiveWell is it is still like very much focused uh, on global health uh, type interventions so there is less focus on other areas that we might uh, put our attention towards. So I have a fairly vague, abstract 
question, which is something like, um, you can imagine there being concentric circles when it comes to charity ideas. And the innermost smaller circle is ideas which already have orgs doing like awesome stuff about them. So deworming, bed nets, food fortification. And then that lies inside a circle where we kind of, we like know about uh, a pressing problem, which really should be being addressed right now, but we haven't quite set up a, an org to address it. And then like the enormous circle that both of them lie inside is like just the space of kind of possible charity ideas that we haven't quite hit on yet, or that we've only just um, started looking at. And I guess I want to get a sense of how big you think those circles are relative to one another. In other words, just how big is the space of like unexplored territory here? And I guess what that drives at is how much time should we be putting into mapping out that territory, getting the value of information over just pumping uh, resources into like existing um, orgs? Does that make sense? Yes. I find it quite hard to answer because the challenge with the unexplored territory is that exploration is more difficult than the things that are in the explored territory. We've explored the areas that are easiest to explore. Uh, and the further you go out from your circle, um, the like harder exploration becomes. Um, but I certainly think that the unexplored space is really large. Uh, and I'm super excited to see organizations doing new things in this space. Um, I think on topics like uh, mental health, health security, uh, meta science, uh, governance reform. Uh, there's all these like areas that like might be like really, really impactful for the world. Um, especially over slightly longer timescales. Um, and like we have just the like, only the faintest idea of like how to even explore these areas and like what to do in them. But I think like starting things and seeing what could be created um, is important and like learning as much as we can as we go. Awesome. I would love to maybe now delve into more of this process that you're involved in in coming up with like what potential ideas are actually really promising for charity entrepreneurship. And as I understand it, this kind of begins with coming up with a really long list of like potential cause areas. Um, you know, maybe it's been described at this like unexplored space. Um, yeah, can you like walk us through like what what goes into this and and how do you think about like brainstorming these these ideas? Ideas are fairly cheap. Um, I think it's pretty easy to like add ideas to a list within a particular cause area. Um, so let's say we take um, a topic such as mental health. We can then start listing, uh, doing a bit of background reading and just listing ideas that we come across. We can have team brainstorming sessions and then we can invite other people and we do invite other people to like add ideas onto the list. Um, and pretty quickly we find that we have a list of ideas. It's like about 200 plus ideas. Um, so we did a health policy recently. I think that was like 300 and something ideas. Um, we're doing uh, health security now. 
uh, and that's like coming up to 200. Uh, we've just done animal welfare, and that was about 250 ideas. Um, and uh, we kind of time cap this, so we don't want to keep adding ideas forever because we should start moving on to prioritizing them. So like at roughly 200 to 250 decent sounding ideas, we sort of stop at that and start trying to work out which of them are best. Um, and then in terms of working out which are best, uh, it starts with quite an intuition-based decision-making process to pull out the top 50. Uh, so uh, different people in the team will go through the ideas list and like score them based on how likely we think they are to become a top charity. Um, and then we will sort of compare scores and independent scores and discuss and like do little bits of background reading for each 200 or so ideas until we've got a top 50. And then after that, it's uh, iterative sort of processes where we start with like two hour research uh, per idea and move up uh, in terms of the amount of time put in until we're writing uh, 80 hour reports on the top sort of five to 10 ideas for a particular cause area. Cool. One, one question that comes to mind is, so you've got this super long list of ideas and um, one thing you can do is just go through each one and form like a kind of 30 second prior on how promising you think it seems. I am curious, how accurate do those quick takes tend to be? Like how much do they tend to line up with what you ultimately think is most important? Or are there often lots of surprises and counter counterintuitive results once you put in the time to really systematize the research? Yeah, so it tends not to be a 30 second quick take as much as a 10 minute quick take or five minute quick take. But um, relatively accurate, like obviously the sort of bottom uh, chunk of ideas that we don't recommend, we'll never know if there were some gems in there. And I'm sure there are. I'm sure that like of the 150 ideas that don't make it, um, there will be some um, things in there that we definitely should have passed. But of the like top 50 ideas, yeah, the scores do somewhat correlate with the things that we recommend. Um, not always super strongly. There's always a few things that um, get to the very top of the list that were fairly low down on like that initial scoring. Mm. And and what kind of heuristics do you use like for these like as you said kind of ten minute like judgments and stuff like what would strike you as a more promising cause versus a, a less promising cause? Um, so this is for um, sort of interventions as opposed to causes at this point. Um, uh, we're thinking about whether a small charity created by CE staff could like practically implement the idea. We're thinking about the quality of evidence we'll be able to find for the idea. Uh, we're thinking about um, whether it's neglected uh, and it's likely to be that there is someone or there isn't someone currently doing this idea. We're thinking about risks. So is there some chance this idea like has a bunch of problems or like causes suffering as well as preventing suffering in some way. Uh, we think about scalability. Is this idea actually something that could be scaled into to a really big project? Or is this like a small problem in a specific area? Um, 
And uh, I guess, of course, expected impacts. Like, will this idea make a lot of change in the world? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and are there, like, any, like, useful resources to flag? So, for example, like, the global burden of, like, disease database, I know is, like, a really, really, like, useful resource to get, like, kind of a big picture overview of a bunch of different causes. Are there, like, other things like that that you might want to, like, plug um, or... Um, yeah, say this is a really useful resource to to make these judgments. Yeah, the Global Burden of Disease Database uh, is really good uh, in global health, uh, in health and development more broadly. Uh, we've got some good sort of prioritized lists from uh, organizations such as the Copenhagen Consensus uh, that have like a lot of ideas that they've researched, uh, and some of their work has been useful. Um, and, uh, in animal welfare, we have a welfare point system that we've developed, which is helping us sort of, uh, assess and categorize ideas. Uh, I would also say having like a theory of change for the space you're working in is useful for making these quick judgment calls. So for animal welfare, um, I spent some time before diving into this mapping out like what is happening in this space already, like um, what's the theory of change, what's the thing that like actors uh, here are trying to achieve in different ways in different countries, uh, what comes first, what comes second, like at what point do we want to drive policy change versus corporate change, uh, how important is like individual, uh, individual change in their diet in this like grander picture of things. And then having that high level picture can help quite a lot with, narrowing down on the details mm. yeah what, one thing i'm like curious about that you kind of touched on there before as well was that what might look like a good cause like in the abstract might look different from like what is a good cause or like intervention for charity entrepreneurship specifically and yeah i'm wondering if you can maybe talk a bit more about like the specific features that mean that like entrepreneurship or especially this like one or two person like co-founder model um, is like particularly suitable for this cause as opposed to like not like what well, what kind of features might might these causes have? Yeah, so there's a bunch of like small idiosyncratic things that always play a role. Like, oh, we started a charity doing something very similar last year, so maybe we should like wait a year before starting something else in this domain so we have more information. Like this this kind of like little like quirks of just our process and what we're doing. Um I think a big factor is how likely we are to find a co-founder to do something. Um, so when we've been looking at animal welfare, we've been thinking about uh, trying to improve coordination in some aspects of the animal movement. Uh, but the co-founder to do that would need to be someone who was already known and trusted uh, and respected within, within the animal movement. And then that obviously like is quite a high bar for us to like find that person. So... Um, yeah, we tend to think about who could do it and what skills they would need and how many people like that apply for the incubation scheme. Um, and beyond that, we're like not too picky. There are certain things that do seem like relatively intractable, but we're kind of optimistic about what like a small dedicated organization can achieve. Um, yep. Okay, so right at the end of the research process, you come up with these um, uh, final in-depth research reports. Can you say something about why you make them and what, what does the process look like as well? 
they're made firstly for our decision making so that we can narrow down on the very best ideas for new charities. Uh, and then every other aim from that is secondary. Um, they are also made for the new charities so that when someone comes in uh, to start something, they've got a bunch of guidance there uh, on like what to do, who to talk to, uh, what the evidence for different kinds of interventions within this broader intervention uh, looks like, uh, what kind of countries it might make sense to work in, uh, the kind of like pushback that they might expect to get and like how to handle that. Uh, and we do write sort of follow-up implementation reports with like further information for the co-founders to like really help them get their uh, feet under them and get running and starting these projects as quickly as possible. They, they do also seem like just public goods for the rest of uh, the world because they're public, right? Yeah. Yeah, I, I guess on that point, like have you ever thought about like writing reports on like why you chose not to go forward with a cause? So either, right, um, kind of in this public good sense to make clear why you think like certain areas like aren't tractable or aren't neglected and stuff that still inform like other actors in this space. And maybe like a step further from that as well, like making clear like what things in the world need to change in order to for certain cause areas to like or certain interventions to to become more uh, high impact and stuff. Does that does that make sense? Yeah, totally. We have an upcoming some upcoming reports on our website on this. So keep an eye out on our research. Uh, it's just where it's not as urgent or not a priority. Like it does uh, tend to happen when there's like time and capacity for it to happen rather than like immediately at the point where like the research is finished or something like that. Yeah, there's maybe like, a quick, and I'm sorry for like kind of banging on uh, like on this. I think it's just like a really interesting point that I think like lots of orgs are like kind of like struggling with. But um it seems almost that like you just want to think about like different formats that you can like put out this information in a way that is like less time intensive and maybe like reputationally linked uh, like a report on a website is. And I don't know like if if like the solution here is like a Twitter thread or like uh, a Google Sheets or like an EA forum post or something. But like in many cases, like the work has already kind of been done, right? Where you get to the point that you realize that that the decision consequences to like not go forward anymore. And all the information that was used to inform that decision has presumably already been collected as such. And then it's more of like a messy like notes brain dump or something rather than having to um, write out a big report, um, double check everything and, and and do it as such, right? Like just getting that information out for like the next person to, to take it on from there seems, seems valuable. Um, we've now talked about the like ideation process and, and how you come uh, with the recommendations for, for charities that you would be really excited to set up uh, each year. And I think this year, if I'm understanding it right, you have got like five causes um, that you're looking to um, get people excited about uh, in the incubation program. So I thought it could be fun to like maybe do a quick fire round and just like quickly hear the the elevator pitch for each of these. And who knows, uh, maybe listeners uh, will will be excited about one or even more of these and, and think about applying. Does Does that sound good? Yep, let's do it. Awesome. So the first one is road safety. Uh, so uh, lots of people around the world die or are badly injured in traffic accidents. Uh, it's a huge burden of disease uh, and suffering, and it's fairly preventable. Uh, we know the kind of policies that uh, stop uh, injuries, uh, such as seatbelts and speed limits, 
there's lots of countries that have these policies and there's other countries that do not. And we think in your organization, working in some of those countries that don't have road safety policies, uh, advocating and building support for them could be a really effective way of saving a lot of lives of very little cost. Awesome. Yeah, I, I one factor I have it. I don't know if you've like uh, looked into this, but the kind of like path dependency between like um, seatbelt laws and stuff in the US. So this was like I think a topic that became like very politicized in the like 1980s, along like this idea of like the government telling you to like wear a seatbelt and is that like an infringement on on your freedoms or not? And I think one state in particular, like New Hampshire, um, kind of. Uh, like kept with this line, like still to today, where they're like not making it like mandatory as part of their like live free or die mantra. And seatbelt use there is like, I think 70% compared to like the nationwide like average of of 90%. And that just strikes me as one of these like weird, uh, yeah, like, like path dependency things where like policy regimes either choose like one way or another. And it has like really big consequences, even within the same country. So I think I'm aware that like, this is like mostly aimed at like low income countries and, and what have you. But I thought it was like cool, right? That like, even in the US, um, some states have taken like very different paths with uh, like big consequences for, um, yeah, like road accidents and, and road safety. Yeah, really interesting. Yeah, so second uh, example is taxing tobacco. Yeah, so uh, tobacco uh, and smoking uh, in particular are a really big cause of uh, health burden uh, and disease. Uh, as far as we can tell, the most effective uh, and cheapest way to reduce tobacco use is for higher tobacco taxes uh, and uh, would be keen to see a new organization doing more work in this space, uh, advocating for tobacco taxation. Awesome. Um, third uh, intervention, I think, is aid quality advocacy. Uh, yeah, so uh, lots of countries uh, provide uh, aid and development uh, funding to uh, other countries to help them grow, to address uh, big issues like global health and development, um, diseases, um, and so forth. This money is not always given particularly effectively. Uh, there are many uh, competing factors uh, that politicians will take into account uh, when this like money is given. Uh, and... Uh, more organizations advocating for like making sure that those resources do the most good for the greatest number of people uh, and are given towards particularly like evidence-backed uh, approaches towards doing good uh, could be really important uh, for changing how that money is spent. And that's uh, billions of pounds uh, from governments given in aid every year. So small changes in effectiveness. Uh, could have a really positive impact uh, on so many lives around the world. Um, I guess one question I have, like um, on on this intervention in particular, is like the case for scalability seems like, or the, sorry, the, the case for importance like seems really clear. But I'm wondering around like the neglectedness of this issue. So I know there are like lots of like orgs um, already like advocating for more foreign advocacy or for for better. Uh, sorry, for more foreign aid or, or better foreign aid, like the the Center for Global Development. Like, where are the entrepreneurial pieces um, or like like gaps that that you are looking to fill? Um, yeah. So it really depends a lot on the country. 
So the Center for Global Development has a particularly good reputation in the UK and the US and is doing some good work there. Um, but even in those spaces, perhaps uh, only does certain ty- kinds of like activism and campaigning. So it will focus on like being a reputable think tank and won't necessarily be actively gaining public support for policy change or anything like that as an approach. Um, and then beyond the UK and the US, they have less effect. There are other organizations, um, but each country has their own sort of idiosyncrasies and like uh, culture where there are gaps. Uh, so there seems to be uh, gaps for organizations particularly focused on evidence in Germany. Uh, it seems that there are uh, a lot of aid being currently given by India, but not necessarily a focus on effectiveness there. Uh, so if you look at the report, we sort of go through the different ways that aid could be improved in some like specific countries where we think it might be tractable to focus on for each kind of way that aid and development spending could be uh, better done. Um, so it really depends a lot on the country to country. Awesome. Um, Fourth intervention to ask about is postpartum family planning. I didn't actually write this report. So I, (laughs) this was before my time. I don't have strong views on this, but uh, I have been interacting with our previous family planning charity, uh, Family Empowerment Media. And they just seem to be having like a really big positive effect on the world. Um, We think just in terms of like lives saved, uh, their work seems uh, at or better than sort of give well top recommended charities in terms of effectiveness uh, so far. Um, and then beyond that, uh, how much you value this space might depend on your views on uh, population ethics and things like that. But I'm definitely excited by the work I've seen in this space so far, uh, although I can't speak for this specific idea or the research behind it. All right. Left as a question for the listeners. Um, I guess the last example here is what you've called exploratory altruism. What do you mean by that? Uh, So this is a meta charity uh, trying to look at and make the case for new cause areas uh, and uh, new ways of doing good that the effective altruism community might not be looking at. so I imagine this organization would be a small research team uh, regularly producing reports uh, to try and influence and improve how people around the world uh, have an impact in like various cause areas. So this could be looking at topics such as meta-science or uh, preventing uh, democratic backsliding or uh, governance reform or like uh, pain and suffering um, or um, mental health um, or all these other cause areas that maybe like are not necessarily looked at uh, yet within the EA community uh, and trying to map out the like space, uh, the opportunities, the possibilities for doing good uh, and then use that to try and drive change in some way whether that's through making actors in that space more effective or, or guiding people in the effect autism community who are already in that space or trying to shift 
some of the funding that this community has towards new ways of doing good. So is the idea here that, sure, there are lots of EA orgs that are looking into relatively well mapped out cause areas. But what we want is an org to act a bit like scouts, you know, and like run ahead and just map out all the areas that the rest of EA writ large hasn't quite kind of looked into yet, just so we can just, I guess, yeah, extending this map analogy, just so we can kind of look a bit further and see what we're potentially missing. And the idea is that maybe that kind of um, highly exploratory kind of research is currently a bit under-provisioned. Yeah, I think it's extremely under-provisioned. I got involved in the effect autism community about 10 years ago, and people's focuses then were on uh, global health and animal welfare and AI risk. And I remember having these conversations at the time where people would be like, but how do you know these are the most effective things? And I'd be like, well, we don't. This community is like a few months old. We're just trying to like figure this thing out. And like, we're going to do so much more research and we'll definitely find things that are more effective than this. And then here we are um, 10 years down the line. And that research into other course areas is like really not happened. No one seems to be focused on this. So super keen for this exploratory work to happen because I'm not convinced that these are the best things out there that anyone could do. I'm not convinced that we shouldn't be focused on uh, global stability, that we shouldn't be focused on like preventing people going through extreme pain or torture um, or like finding ways to like mitigate the chance of wars. Um, and I'm not sure that anyone else is. And certainly a small research team spending some time looking into this seems like a really valuable thing to have in the world. Yeah, I think I'm inclined to agree. Obviously, I've been around EA much less long than you have. But what you said resonates with me. At the same time, I'm like confident this is not a problem with people's attitudes within EA. Like I'm sure that almost everyone would just nod along and be like, yeah, totally. We should be exploring like a ton of like weird new things that no one else is looking at. So it's not like people just disagree. It's just like, I guess we haven't followed through on that commitment. If it is, if it is the case that this kind of exploratory stuff is under provisioned, I guess I'm wondering like, what's your story about why we haven't really got around to that thing yet? <laughs> like what's going on there? Um, I think there's a lot of really good things in the world that we have not got around to yet. <laughs> and yeah. um, we're like a really young community. And this is a hard thing to do to like make the case for these new cause areas. Um, so it doesn't shock me that it's not happening. Um, I think perhaps people are like a bit too keen just to stop and focus on the area they think themselves is most effective. Um, so like once you start doing a bunch of research, you like find an area you think is effective and you start working there. It doesn't necessarily leave a lot of people in that like space of uncertainty and like ongoing willingness to explore. Um, so super keen for to find those explorers, those uh, doubtful people with like a hint of uncertainty in their hearts who can go out and try and map out the world in ways that are not currently happening. Yeah, I guess some of it is like giving people permission to do that. I think everything you've said is especially true in long-termist EA, where this chunk of EA is um, newer than a lot of EA 
And so it's been mapped out much less. I'm sure we've missed a lot of really promising ideas, but I wonder if there's a tendency to kind of over defer to what feels like the consensus and maybe get this false impression that long-termist EA is more confident about the best things to do <laughs> than in fact it is. Where in fact, I think there's, just, there's a very kind of just wide uncertainty about uh, what the hell we should be doing. It's just very hard to communicate that. Um, so yeah, I'm kind of pro like more loudly um, and transparently communicating how how hard this stuff is to find the best things. It's not like an embarrassing fact, right? The world's a complicated place. Yeah, I completely agree. I think it's great that there's people who are like, no, I want to stop exploring and I want to start having an impact on the world. And that's like wonderful and go them. Uh, but should there be like, some like focused exploration team looking at this. Uh, yes, and that's sort of the case for uh, us recommending this as a charity idea. And yes, I do think it's beyond just cause areas. I think there is useful research to be done on different approaches to cause areas. Um, like to what extent can we drive change by shifting uh, the policy world? To what extent can we drive change by shifting how corporates uh, function? Um, like how valuable are these approaches? Well, in the spirit of being open-minded, but not so open-minded that uh, brains drop out, I was curious if you could um, describe some ideas that you looked into and ultimately rejected. There's a lot of ideas that got rejected like very early on in the decision-making process because, you know, we spend 30 seconds looking at them and think that's a terrible idea. Uh, and then some of the ideas that we like researched in more depth, uh, but didn't recommend include things such as, let's see, advanced market commitments for healthcare, uh, improving air quality, uh, perhaps uh, with um, changes to cars um, and addressing traffic pollution. Uh, we did look into uh, this is an interesting one. Improving air quality by having satellite monitoring to improve enforcement of pollution from really large polluters. And I think the report on that should be up fairly soon. Uh, and it seems quite promising. Maybe we'll recommend it in future. It just is the case that for now, we couldn't reach a conclusive uh, view on whether or not the current satellites uh, that we could access would have good enough uh, data for this to work. Well, maybe let's move on and zoom out of these specific interventions and just talk about charity entrepreneurship as a whole again. Uh, I think one thing that just like strikes me from this conversation is this just seems like a really cool process. Um, and maybe we should just like have like lots more like this. And one thing in particular here is that, as you said, charity entrepreneurship looks at well-being beyond maybe just like the give well, dally, like health interventions approach. But it's still like from the ideas you've kind of like listed here, um, maybe fought squarely in the like near-termist side of EA than the, the long-termist side. And I guess like one resulting question is, should there maybe be a charity entrepreneurship like for long-termism too? And I know this is a question that's kind of already been discussed and such. But yeah, I'm, I'm curious to yeah, yeah like hear, your, hear your take on that. Yeah, um, I totally think there should be. Um, charity entrepreneurship does uh, focus a lot more on 
uh, near-term and animal welfare interventions. I personally think as an organization, we should be willing to look beyond that uh, and look at a whole range of like other interventions, including preventing existential risks. But um, if we're not going to do that, and we are going to look at some things that like cross that border. So we are looking at uh, health security, including biosecurity at the minute. Um, but yes, I think given uh, the hesitancy of charity entrepreneurship to do that work, I would love there to be a long-termist charity entrepreneurship out there in the world. Um, I think to date, there's not been, there's just been like a lack of interest in making this happen or a culture of like, let's do research first in long-termism before we actually like do anything. Uh, and I think that's like perhaps thrown a barrier up towards anyone in this space really getting things started. Um, and to some degree, like that creates a bit of a culture of inaction of, oh, well, you can maybe do this, but maybe we should just do more research first. Means that you never learn by doing. Uh, and to some degree, uh, there's been like a lack of funding. So I know like maybe half a dozen people who have applied with like what on the outside seem like fairly reasonable sounding uh, policy entrepreneurial ideas to like the long-term future fund and just are not getting funding um, because just the bar for proving that these things are definitely good has been very high. Uh, this may or may not have been justified, um, but I do think it's changing. I do think that the Survival and Flourishing Fund and the new FTX Future Fund uh, seem more willing to fund stuff than we've seen in the past. So I think that might drive people to actually do things, which I would be super excited about. Yeah, one question is, how, how is this long-termist entrepreneurship likely to be different from the kind of entrepreneurship that um, CE like, helps support? I think it depends. Uh, we have, for example, supported EA Meta entrepreneurs. Uh, and I think probably that's like the closest analog uh, analogous case. So for anyone wanting to try and start long-termist entrepreneurship organizations, I think coming to do a case study of what we've done on EA Meta and how it's worked and how it's not worked would be really interesting. I think we have found EA Meta to be a slightly more challenging area. Our success rate on those charities, uh, still hard to tell is it's early days, but like it's at least harder for us to like track the impact of them. Uh, and that's probably expected. Like they are harder to track the impact of meta organizations. Uh, but I think uh, in the long-termist space there might be a whole bunch of organizations that people create without uh being able to track the impact uh particularly well um so we currently have a like fail rate i can imagine long-termist entrepreneurship like having organizations that just don't fail because you know there's no impact measurement um yeah so i think that's like one difference um, I do think there can be impact measurement. I do think on policy stuff, like you can measure the impact of what you're doing and track the change you've driven. Uh, and I think in terms of like near-term policy and long-term policy, it would be pretty similar. Uh, it's just like the specific policies you're advocating for that are different. 
but you could track the impact of those organizations in pretty much the same way, and it would match a very similar pattern to what we've done. Well, one thing I kind of want to like pick up on here as well is it sounds before what you were saying with like people applying with specific charities or, or interventions in mind, like struggling to get funding, that feels a bit still different from, I guess, like the pitch for just like an organization like Charity Entrepreneurship, whose job is to vet these kinds of like interventions and charities and then come up with a shortlist that they are like excited to get funding and stuff, right? Like there feels like a difference between um, applying to existing funds with um, like concrete proposals versus this like, right? Like in some ways, charity entrepreneurship is a meta org, right? And that is just like, its job is to generate these like good ideas and stuff. Maybe just having a long-term is all like that seems like a uh, like a lower ask uh, to, yeah, to, to try and create. I totally 100% think there should be that kind of organization. I think just throwing out ideas and asking people to apply for them is not sufficient. Um, for example, in the animal welfare space, the Animal Welfare Fund often does requests uh, for proposals, throws out uh, ideas they want to see happen, and the traction and pickup of that is really low. But at the same time, charity entrepreneurship can start a whole bunch of animal welfare charities. Uh, so like having that, here's an idea, here's the support you need, here's the co-founders, here's the like funding all rolled into a simple package does make quite a big difference. So I think that's one thing. I just think people are much more excited by being taken through that process and you will just get much better talent from having that. And then the second thing I think is about prioritization. FTX Future Fund have a list of ideas. There's maybe 30 ideas on that list. Um, having skimmed the list, I think given the broad range of topics it covers, you can maybe pull a list like the ones that we pull together of like a thousand ideas uh, that seem like roughly in that kind of ballpark. Um, and without any sort of rigorous prioritization, you will get organizations starting projects across so many different things. Uh, and like what we do is like prioritize before organizations get started. Uh, so I think that's a mistake that I could imagine long-term as entrepreneurship making uh, or people trying to start like charities in the long-term space making is just failing to prioritize across the like many, many hundreds of possible good ideas that are out there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. I think like also maybe to pick up on this like FTX Futures point, I think they posted it um, or they posted a call for like more ideas as well, right? Beyond the, the 30 ideas on the website and got like a lot of traction, right? Like on the, on the forum with like lots of comments and lots of ideas. Um, yeah, I think I like am broadly like by the argument that like the shortfall is not that like there aren't enough ideas uh, out there to to do in the real world, uh, like on the long term side, it is as you said, like a maybe prioritizing amongst these ideas or or being able to like evaluate these ideas um, to, yeah. to see which ones are like worth worth doing. On that call for ideas, I didn't enter the sort of forum post competition, but I did email FTX Fund, uh, maybe like three hundred. And 50 or so ideas I had listed <laughs> relevant to the things that they were looking for. Yeah, um, yeah. So there are a lot of ideas out there. Yeah, yeah. No, and yeah, and it's exciting. I think also like the point around like information value and stuff feels like really important. Whether like, it, it kind of like 
cuts both ways where on the one hand you would imagine that like information is in many ways like even more valuable uh, like on the long term side because there's like less information to begin with where like learning by doing might be like even more important um, but on the other hand it's like maybe harder to to interpret uh, said feedback or get like these feedback loops but yeah I think that as a whole it just feels like a really um, like exciting space to, to see more people uh, evaluating prioritizing and then also like just doing uh, in the in the real world. Um, yeah, let's maybe return back to the incubation uh, program for this year uh, with charity entrepreneurship itself. And I guess like one question to maybe ask here is what makes for a good charity entrepreneur or like what type of uh, like people would you be excited about uh, like seeing apply? Um, well, first thing to say is if anyone is interested, there's a quiz on the website where you can go and do it. And this should tell you whether or not you would be a good fit for the program. And applications are open until the end of March. So I really strongly encourage people to uh, go and try the quiz and apply for the program and find out for themselves that way. Uh, I mean, the really short answer is to what makes someone good at starting a high-impact charity is uh, being good at starting things. So entrepreneurial, uh, resourceful, uh, committed, and independent, and then being high impact and impact focused, <laughs> like so, um, someone who's like really dedicated and driven to do the thing which will have the biggest effect. To be like willing to change their organization and what they're working on based on what the evidence says, uh, and to try and achieve as much change as possible. Uh, so, impact focused and entrepreneurial are at the sort of top of my list of things for starting an impact enterprise yeah i'm curious as well um like how uh like does imposter syndrome and and stuff like this feed into this as well because when i think i hear like oh you need to be like entrepreneurial or you need to be like really like high impact focus and stuff that kind of like is uh in in some ways like a, a call for excellence which maybe is just like like justified but i'm curious of like yeah if people are listening to this and like not entirely sure if they like fall under like this bucket or, or that bucket if they have enough experience or or not like yeah like what um so we really don't judge that much based on experience uh like obviously it helps uh but we have had people who are like recently out of university uh we do get like a really broad category of uh people on the program from all around the world lots of different backgrounds uh and countries uh it is competitive there are like lots of people who apply to get on the program uh but we think that uh like lots of different people with different backgrounds can like create this uh create really good charities and we have an application scheme and if people uh are straight out of university and they apply and they like do well on the application process then they will get through and they will get onto the program um and like half of our most successful founders from previous years didn't think they should apply like uh, we do, if you're not sure, like it is worth uh, people applying. Um, uh, talent is everywhere, um, and there are some really good people out there who could do amazing things. Uh, and I would highly encourage them to give it a go and take the quiz and apply for the program. All right, so let's switch gears a bit and talk about long-termist policy. So another thing you've done, Sam, is you helped set up um, the all-party parliamentary group for future generations, APPG. 
Um, first of all, can you just tell us what that thing is and what does it do? Yeah. Um, so the All Party Parliamentary Group for Future Generations is a group within the UK Parliament. Um, uh, so a collection of like MPs, members of Parliament and peers, members of the House of Lords who are keen to uh, address the issues uh, affecting the future. So in particular, like political short-termism, um, potential like risks to the future, uh, be they climate or pandemic or other, um, and any other like issues focused on sort of the long-term, on like preventative policy, on intergenerational fairness, uh, and so forth. And I didn't uh, create it. I was involved from the very early stages. Um, but it was set up by a bunch of students who believed that there should be more focus on future generations. Super. Can you say a bit about what APPG is currently working on? Yes. So uh, we have an inquiry that we've been carrying out into how to uh, ensure that policymaking works for the long term. And that's been like a two-year project. And we hope to have that finished uh, in the next month or two uh, and up online. And then after that, we will be thinking about like next steps, uh, what the policy recommendations are on that. And if any of our parliamentary members want to like take action to drive forward any of those policy recommendations. Um, we also are doing a little bit of international work. Uh, so working with the UN uh, and other countries. Uh, we've been doing a bunch with the Ukraine recently uh, and thinking about organizing a series of events on like long-term thinking in policymaking uh, around the world. Um, and there's there will be events in Parliament and we'll try and get some like members of Parliament there and also get some other people from around the world to attend and hopefully try and create a similar type projects to our project in other countries. Um, there's also a future generations bill going on. So there's an ongoing campaign for that. Uh, and we've been supporting recently um, one MP to do some work in his local constituency to try and find out what his uh, local constituents want for the future. And we think that's like an interesting experiment um, and would be keen to see more things like that happening where people are like working with small groups of citizens to understand what their needs are for the future and see if they can uh, make that evidence like have an impact in their own sort of policy decisions uh, for local areas uh, as well as obviously at the national level. So I guess like, one thing that strikes me from from kind of like like hearing about this is this seems to be 
um, maybe a way of kind of promoting long-termist policy kind of like broadly. It seems to be a lot around like promoting general concepts like future generations and long-term planning and, and what have you, which maybe looks different to promoting like specific interventions around AI or bio-risk and, and the like as such. Is that a good way of like characterizing maybe um, the work that APGG is doing or, or how you yourself maybe think about like um, long-termist policy and the like, or yeah, like what the differences there are? Yeah, so um, the way in my own decision-making that I think about it is trying to do a bit of both. Uh, I would say in policy-making, you're often finding various opportunities as and when they come up and capitalizing on those. So sometimes we will have um, supporters or parliamentarians who are really keen on a particular topic or people who want to speak to parliamentarians on a particular topic and then we'll focus on that topic. Uh, and that could be anything from um, like how to make sure that education works for the long term to how to make sure that uh, our energy grid is like robust to failure uh, to how to prevent pandemics. Um, so yeah, for like my own decision making, I've kind of split uh, it into two goals. One is to try and uh, make sure that in the next 10 years, the UK becomes a world leader in resilience to extreme risks and is championing those risks uh, globally. And the other, and that's quite specific to a particular like subtopic uh, of like risk focused that I think is uh, particularly important within the space of future generations. And then the other is a more general one, which is uh, to play a role in ensuring that long-term thinking is embedded and ingrained into the policy process in the UK. So mm. a more specific and a more general. Yeah. I think I'm, I'm curious to maybe hear more of the case for this like second part around just like embedding long-term thinking um, like broadly, um, as opposed to focusing on these like much more specific um, X risks and, and kind of going like all in on there. Like, where do you see the the upside um, for promoting that kind of thinking too? Yeah, I think there's two cases here. Um, one uh, is less tied into long-termist thinking and is more just about making sure that policymaking goes well. So if policymakers are making decisions that don't care about the future, they often end up making poor decisions. So uh, when I worked in government, uh, it was during austerity and the government was busy like uh, cutting funding for various departments and the order office looked back on that and said, well, you're making all these cuts that led to like costs further down the line. Like you were making a bunch of short-term decisions, even to like sacrifice of the goals that you were like statedly trying to achieve. Uh, and that's just bad policymaking. Um, and like, if we can have a system that works, that like has mechanisms to ensure that like, uh, short-termism doesn't override like other factors in the policy decision-making process, uh, consistently, then we can have better policy. We can, uh, perhaps solve some of the big problems that affect our society, uh, or prevent problems getting worse or occurring more than just patch them up after they've occurred. So like one of our main supporters focuses a lot on homelessness and thinks that if we had a better policy process, we could stop people becoming homeless before 
uh, it happens rather than deal with it after it's happened. Right. This is Lord Bird, right? Presumably. Yes, this is the Lord Bird. Yeah. Who we should flag. We have spoken to, although likely the Lord Bird episode will come out after this one, just to confuse people. Great. So everyone should look out for that future episode. Um, the other case uh, is perhaps more of a, uh, within the sort of long-termist frame of thinking, perhaps more associated with paint, patient long-termism. Uh, and the idea here is that we don't necessarily have good reason to believe that the biggest risks to the future will happen like right now or this decade uh, or even this century. Um, but um, if we can like have a system that is generally uh, good at identifying uh, dangers and risks, uh, that's resilient to risks, that is like full of people who care about the future and see that as an important topic, then at that future point, at that time of perils that may or may not be soon, uh, we will hopefully have a system that's like better equipped and better prepared to handle that. Um, so how can we improve uh, the extent to which political actors think about the future? How can we improve the extent to which our risk identification systems pick up on new emerging risks that we don't yet know about as and when they occur uh, are all part of this puzzle. I guess to the extent which we're unsure about what these big risks could look like when they materialize, then we should be interested in these cross-cutting kind of institutional improvements being just broadly robust, broadly good at making quick decisions when push comes to shove, rather than here's the thing, let's just go and solve that particular thing. Yes. Uh, I think that if I had to make estimates of what the biggest risks are this century, uh, by a significant margin, unknown risks would be at the top of my list. Um, and uh, I know other people think about this. When Toby Ord made his estimates of risks, he put unknown risks uh, sort of second after AI joint with pandemic risks. Uh, but certainly, if I think back 50 years ago and think like, what are the risks that people in 50 years would have thought would be the big challenges today? I don't think they would necessarily have got it right. When I got involved in EA about 10 years ago, people were talking about the big risks of like nanotech and AI. And now there's like a lot more focus on AI. So like our knowledge of this being a risk has right, like right, right. grown a lot more. Yeah. So I, I was going to mention AI because... Um, Correct me if you think I'm wrong, but I notice um, that you didn't really foreground um, risks from AI when you were talking about um, the APPG. And as we're all aware, you know, lots of people think that maybe AI just poses by far the greatest risk um, this century. Um, so I'm curious why AI doesn't feature more heavily is the issue that it's just especially difficult to communicate this kind of crazy weird thing to parliamentarians i think it does feature feel free to edit sure, what sure, i said sure, sure. and add ai into the list <laughs> so like climate change bio and ai uh we have an event next week uh which will be after this podcast goes on air um i assume with uh a former minister who worked on tech policy and with Brian Christian, 
the author of the alignment problem um talking about like policy in that space and like what the uk can do so this is definitely a thing that we do work on i think it gets like a bit less attention for me because um the policy seems less tractable right now in a bunch of ways uh, especially compared to general risk management policy or pandemic prevention, which uh, have got a lot of post-COVID interest in both of those. Um, so, and it's like less um, clear what uh, the most tractable things on AI in the UK right now are, uh, but it's certainly an important thing and certainly uh, it's a thing that we talk about and work on. Yeah, cool. That seems totally sensible to me. Um, can I ask a slightly more like critical or controversial question, which you're totally free to pass up? So APPG has been like involved in getting through this um, bill, Welfare Future Generations bill, um, which on the face of it looks pretty exciting, certainly to me. But um, I'm sure you're aware that some people have raised um, some worries with the way it's like structured currently. So, for instance, there are worries that it doesn't really mention existential risks, which you might kind of care especially about. Um, And there are worries about kind of regulatory capture as well. And, you know, well, it's just another quango that's going to make certain infrastructure, valuable infrastructure projects kind of just a bit harder to get off the ground and and not much else. (laughs) Um, So I'm curious what you think about those those critiques and like where you think the value of this kind of um, a bill comes from? Um, yeah, so the APPG has not got this bill through Parliament. Uh, right, the bill yeah, is yeah. a private member's bill. Um, it will not pass uh, through Parliament unless uh, there's like literally no opposition and all the MPs are like, oh, this should go through without a debate, uh, which seems extremely unlikely. Um and uh, therefore, I think it makes more sense to see this as like a campaigning tool than like the perfect bill that we would want to be passed. Um, so if I'm understanding you properly, like driving conversation and getting MPs to talk about concepts like future generations and uh, well-being and, and such, is that right? Uh, yeah. Um, and it's doing a really great job. Um I do support the bill. Uh, On mentioning existential risks, uh, that was like a conscious decision made when the bill was drafted uh, because uh, I talked to people who work on existential risks uh, at the Centre for the Study of Existential Risk uh, and they advised using the term global risk instead, which has essentially the same meaning, but perhaps like a slightly different... um, brand or connotation behind it. Uh, I think the idea was like, we don't yet know what will happen with this bill or where it will go in Parliament. Let's not associate the uh, existential risk idea with it quite yet. Let's just stick to something uh, that doesn't have our sort of brand name in it, uh, which will be global risks. Um, I think that was their thinking. You might have to reach out to the staff at Caesar uh, to try and dig into that. Uh, but yeah, that was a deliberate decision. Um, I think that uh, we've done a bunch of 
analysis on when long-term decision-making works well in government. And all the cases we can find involve some external oversight, um, which means some like arm's length body that can like either input or like publish or like comment uh, or like have a say on government policy as it's happening. Um, not all the cases, but like the vast majority seem to have that feature. Uh, so including that in the bill felt like an important part of the bill. Um, I think that um, there are some things this bill is not trying to do. It's not trying to like tell government how to behave. It's not trying to tell government what policy makes sense. It's just trying to provide a tool for addressing political short-termism. Uh, if government has a set of policies focused on uh, more infrastructure, um, then I think the bill should help those like policies come to fruition if the bill was passed. Uh, I think if government has a bunch of policies focused on um, sort of uh, climate issues and biodiversity and things like that, then I think the bill should help those policies be passed. It's not telling government what to do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, I guess another point, this is just me rambling again, but, you know, there is a very long chain between having the ideas in their, like, purest form and translating them into stuff in the world, especially via um, policy or politics. And I take it you're just going to need to, um, you know, compromise on the kind of most out there purist versions of the things you care about and just like accommodate for lots of different interests and just make it like more realistic or something and there's a challenge in just like how watered down does it have to be in order to actually happen yeah i think there's like different stages of a process so when you're trying to get like lots of support from lots of people having a bill with like everybody's ideas in it um gets more support from more people, but it's perhaps less the bill that you would like ideally draft. Um, and that's maybe like more important for the initial campaigning stage. Uh, but as ideas look more tractable, it's probably more important to like, think about like what's the like best possible version of this bill uh, and how do we make that happen? So I think it depends where you are in terms of campaigning, exactly like what you want your bills to look like and where to focus. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You can imagine just thinking that this um, future generations commissioner doesn't really even approximate the kinds of things that you ultimately care about. Like it's been so, it's like so accommodated, lots of different alternative views that um, the like sign isn't even really clear. Like in practice, it's pushing for like, you know, kind of cool like environmental projects and also cancelling some infrastructure projects and almost entirely misses the stuff that like was originally motivating the reason to like care about, you know, not just our like children and grandchildren, but like potentially like the very long term trajectory that humanity takes. And this doesn't have a lot to do with like whether this road should be built or something. I think we should remember that we don't know how to like address political short termism. Um, you may or may not think addressing political short termism is good for the very long term. Um, and probably from a long-termist point of view, the best case for addressing political short-termism is something like 
Um, maybe we'll be in this sort of future time of perils in 50 or 100 years from now. We want to make sure our like systems at that point are as good as possible. Uh, so we probably shouldn't be asking questions like, uh, is this bill in its current form like specifically helping? It should probably be questions like, do we think stuff like this is like moving countries in the right or wrong direction? Um, that might also be unclear. I guess like one thing that makes me think it's likely to be in the right direction is that it provides like an experiment, right? Like what I would be super keen to see, uh, and we are already starting to see is, uh, people in perhaps just in local areas in their own like constituents, uh, or boroughs for like MPs and mayors, like trying out ways of trying to make uh, politics a bit less short term, seeing how it goes, seeing what we can learn from it. I'd be excited to see a draft version of the Future Generations Bill, which had more focus on like, here's when we will like review whether or not this bill is working. And here's like what we will do as part of that review and like recognizing that like, we don't know if this will work, but we want to yeah. learn from it. No, thanks. That's that's a really useful clarification, at least for me, I think. I think one of the things I was running together in my head was um, whatever is the opposite of political short-termism, you know, just call it political long-termism, right? Looking looking beyond just the next like cycle or whatever. Um, and on the other hand, like this thing called long-termism that EAs care about and talk about, which is this big, like kind of broadly philosophical worldview. And... Um, Seems pretty plausible that addressing political short-termism is like very useful in various ways um, if you care about this thing called long-termism, but let's not identify them. For instance, if you're even if you don't care about this kind of you know crazy long-termist humanities trajectory stuff, still seems pretty robustly good to like make sure that um, uh, political institutions are like able to take the next few decades seriously and like accurately forecast the effects of policies and so on um also seem like possibly pretty good for for long termists but they yeah they're not the same thing and so it's not a knockdown objection to claim that the connection between you know encouraging a bit of foresight on the on the part of governments doesn't immediately map on to the kinds of outcomes that long termists care about um yeah, if you want to do something that immediately maps onto the kinds of outcomes long-termists care about, then you probably need to be focusing on uh, specific like risk-related stuff. Um, if you generally want to be trying to like make sure that political systems work a bit better, and maybe in like a hundred years are slightly better at like planning for the long term, then maybe things like this are justified from a long-termist point of view. Um, I think. They're probably uh, just as well justified from like a near-termist, let's try and have policy institutions that work for people right now kind of point of view. I suggest we maybe move on from this specific bill and with maybe some of the, the last bit of time that we have remaining, maybe ask you, Sam, about like some broader lessons or kind of insights around policy. So you've mentioned that you, you used to work for the government, you were involved in setting up um, APBG, and I'm sure you maybe just have like some kind of insights 
um, on how to do policy, irrespective of what said policy is. Um, so one thing to maybe kick this off is you mentioned in an EA forum post that if there's one piece of advice that you would give, it is pick your battles well and make sure you're pushing on doors that will open if pushed. Um, yeah, can you explain what exactly you mean by this and in what cases in your own experience uh, this, this perhaps applied to? So at Charity Entrepreneurship, we've done some looking at policy interventions uh, for new charities. Uh, and uh, we like, when we're doing that, we put some like percentage odds on the chance that the policy that we're going to do is going to happen anyway, even if no one campaigns for it. Uh, and then we try and like, uh, and what we want to find is a policy idea where our best guess of how likely it to happen is not like zero. This will definitely never, ever happen. Like, uh, and it's not like a hundred percent because in the case where like definitely even you could imagine a bunch of other people who aren't asked come along and campaign for it. And it still isn't like looking like it's going to happen, but it's just not that tractable. Uh, in the case where it's definitely going to happen anyway, what's the point of us doing anything? Um, so trying to find like a policy to campaign for is often about finding that thing where it's on political agendas enough, like maybe some other countries have done it, but some haven't. Um, maybe it's a thing that politicians have mentioned, but never got around to doing. Like these kind of like signals might like give you a sense that it's in that sort of nice zone of we can work with this. We can like push this from like 10% to 70% or whatever that might be. Yeah. And and when it then comes to um, actually reaching out to politicians or, or government officials and stuff, like, yeah, what are like maybe the like tools that you can use there and the, um, yeah, things that like in your experience have like really worked as a good way to, to reach out to people? Is it, for example, just like actually going down to your MP, um, like to to talk to them? Is it submitting like bits of like evidence or, or kind of like policy briefs? Um, is it campaigning publicly? Like, yeah, there's like possibly like loads of adv uh, avenues for for kind of advocacy stuff. Are there like any any ones in particular that you want to highlight or, or think that these are underrated? I'm not sure that like any magic avenue comes to mind. There's different avenues for different kinds of situations. Sometimes you want to encourage loads of people to write to their local MP uh, and then be involved in some of that. Uh, sometimes you uh, want to like really target uh, and try and find someone who can connect you to someone who knows a particular person and then make sure you talk to that person's staff beforehand, get an impression of what they're like and sort of like have a, focused outreach approach. Sometimes you don't want to go to the politicians at all and you might just want to talk to the civil servants um, who are doing the sort of wonkish behind the scenes stuff. Um, a lot of what I've been doing in recent years is been like with a certain amount of access to parliamentarians uh, on the parliamentary group. Uh, so then it's been a lot of like reaching out to people in parliament who are interested in the topics that we're having events on and inviting them along and trying to engage them with concern for future generations. Um, yeah, I would say that uh, there's no magic answer here and maybe just like working and campaigning for a period of time will teach you what the tools that exist are and which ones that you personally are good at using because that also matters. 
so far, have you ever seen the film Moneyball? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I've never seen it, but I've heard it's good. <laughs> but like the basic idea in it is that this guy comes into baseball and uh, thinks that you can you could just do the whole thing better by like applying evidence and reason uh, and like actually measuring some of the data on like runs and stats uh, and not just relying on which baseball player looks like a baseball player and things like this uh, and then make loads of money out of it. Uh, in general, I think over the last 10 years, I've been pretty skeptical of this kind of approach from the EA community where people have had this attitude of, we can just go into a new cause area where there's loads of existing best practice and just like completely like do it better than everyone else who's ever done it before. Um, I think uh, I've become slightly more open to that idea recently, uh, in part by looking at how the animal welfare movement has like really changed over the last 10 years uh, from an organization that was doing uh, a lot less and focusing mostly on like campaigning to individuals to go vegan to an organization that's really driving a lot of change in the world by focusing on what's effective. And in part by my experience in policy uh, and just like having read a bunch of organizations like impact reports in the policy sector and try to work out what they're doing the sector is not very evidence-driven. I don't think donors in the sector are very evidence-driven. They're just looking for a policy thing that aligns with what they're trying to do. And I think that could change. And I think there's like a huge opportunity here for like people who are very focused on like evidence and driving impact uh, to push policy a lot more effectively than has currently been happening. Uh, to essentially like moneyball the whole thing uh, and just like assess the quality of the work they're doing, the like counterfactual like uh, impact that they're having and to like make sure their campaigns are really focused on something achievable. Um, so I'm not super sure about this. I do feel I've had a lot more impact in this space than I expected, but maybe I've just been lucky. Um, but it does seem plausible to me that a really evidence-based approach to policy change is something uh, that could exist and doesn't yet exist and that we should be trying to create. Super. For the time being, maybe it makes sense to begin wrapping up, but I did have a question that I really want to ask you, Sam, which is um, you were one of three legendary EA brothers um, and yourself and Jacob and Benjamin all just seem to be doing you know, incredible, impactful things with our lives. Um, what is going on there? Like, what was the, uh, what was the kind of magic ingredient in your like shared environment when you were growing up that meant that you all ended up doing um, these kind of awesome, awesome things? I don't have a magic answer to that. I'd like to say, well, obviously I got involved as the eldest and then they were like, oh, maybe I should do some good too. But maybe that's... <laughs> Uh, a biased point of view. Um, I think my family is great. Um, I uh, just think it's something that we all care about is making the world better as much as we can. And uh, that doesn't seem particularly unusual to me, I guess. Um, I mean, it is in fact unusual, right? So, I mean, one question is maybe... Um, 
is this a peer effects thing? So is the like, you know, Sam found out about EA and is just very persuasive. Is that the right story? Or is it like um, a some kind of shared common factor such that if you were like raised in isolation um, or didn't talk to each other about EA, you might still like independently come to the same conclusions? I don't think it's a peer effect thing. I wasn't particularly trying to persuade my brothers to get involved in making the world better. Maybe that's because it always seemed obvious to me that it was a good thing and perhaps seemed obvious to them. Um, I don't have a magic answer here. Well, let's um, maybe move to to wrapping up then. So we have some final questions that we ask uh, all our guests. The first one is, what are three books, articles, films, or whatever other bit of media that you would recommend to anyone interested in finding out more about what we've talked about here? On charity entrepreneurship, uh, there's now a charity entrepreneurship handbook available called How to Launch a High Impact Nonprofit, uh, and also a YouTube channel where you can find a bunch of talks that we've done in the past, uh, and the quiz online where you can find out if you're a good person to start a charity. Um, one book I've read recently uh, is Epic Measures which is about the person who started the global burden of disease, uh, which is like a really impressive uh, data collection process that tracks uh, disease burdens globally in a way that hasn't been done before and to me seems powerful and revolutionary. And that's just like a nice, inspiring story of someone who uh, was dedicated, hardworking and started something new and impactful. Uh, and goes to show the kind of impact that you can have. So the thing that this makes me think about as well is this like move in the 1990s towards like global health R&D. So the two things that I've kind of like read on this as well, which were like really cool, was the 1993 World Development Report, uh, which I think created the concept of the DALI, and the 1996 WHO report, which um, created a strategy for investing in in health R&D, which is like insanely similar to, I think, like how EAs like have this like important tractability, like neglectedness framework. And they like set it out back in, in 1996, I think in a, in a really cool way for like the burden of disease. So extra readings, I think if, if you like that book, you might also like these like wonky policy reports. Uh, on long-termist policy stuff, there's not that much to read. I like I mostly just read lots of government white papers and things like that. Uh, and mostly it's very UK-focused stuff. Um, so, yeah, it's not not very interesting answers. Maybe things like the EA Forum, maybe the Bulletin of Atomic Scientists, maybe look at some of the resources on the APPG for Future Generations website. Um, all of these uh, might have little bits of the puzzle. Uh, and if you're looking for some general light reading on the topic, uh, perhaps The Good Ancestor uh, is a book that I've had recommended, but I've not yet found the time to read myself. Yeah, I, I fairly enjoyed that book. Um, there are lots of little like gems in there that I didn't know about before. So I learned about Joseph Bazalgette. He was this Victorian engineer who more or less designed London's sewers. And the um, cool thing about this is that he saw far enough ahead to realize that they would need much larger capacity than they like currently needed. And so 
you know, designed in this Slack. So they're like much, much bigger than, um, than most people thought they need to be. And of course, nowadays, that's just like panned out incredibly well because we can still more or less use the, the infrastructure that he laid down um, in the Victorian era. So, um, yeah, underrated proto, proto long term, Joseph Bazalgette. On useful reading on policy change, uh, I don't have a great uh, general thing about all the different tools. Um, the report from Founders Pledge on evidence-based policy cause area um, is got some decent information in it, especially in the appendix. The strategy documents for the all-party parliamentary group for future generations might give some indication of the kind of work that we've done and might be interested to people. Um, and then there's a bunch of ideas that people might want to look up, such as Kingdom Theory, uh, Overton Windows, um, COMB, uh, Capability, Opportunity, uh, Motivation and Behavior. Um, uh, and some of these ideas are ideas I use in my strategy making when it comes to policy that might be of interest to people. Cool. So the second question we have started asking all our guests is, um, are there any areas or like specific questions that you really most want to see good work on? And just being cognizant that maybe people listening to this could actually just do that work. I think long-termist entrepreneurship it's a thing we've discussed in the past. Uh, well, the, the we discussed earlier in this interview, uh, I think there's been a lot of barriers to people doing this. Uh, I'd be keen to see them removed. I'd be keen to see people prioritizing the options in this space. I'd be keen to see people doing things with like feedback loops where like impact can actually be measured uh, as work progresses. Uh, and I'd be keen to see things that aren't just uh, research, but are actually trying to change the world in some way. Um, I don't necessarily think any of that will be easy, uh, but there is funding for people who are keen to do this and uh, committed. So that's an exciting set of projects that I'd be interested to happen. Uh, and then obviously all the projects that like Charity Entrepreneurship wants to get started, like road traffic safety, improving aid quality, and so on, people can apply to the incubation program and come start some of those. Cool. Amen. Um, yeah. And also impact evaluation, like external impact evaluation for long-termist orgs, right? Like if the orgs are not going to have time to evaluate themselves, then maybe you could just go around and like evaluate all the orgs yourself. Um, that's just, that's kind of in line with what you said that I, I'd be especially like excited about as, as well. Yes. Uh, there's a line on that I can give you, which I don't yet know if it's true. Um, but this might be true in a week, which is, uh, charity entrepreneurship has also just recommended another idea, which is an external evaluation organization that can provide resources to organizations wanting external evaluations carried out and support the EA community in that, because we think that's an important thing that should happen. So it's not uh, something we've discussed yet, but it's a new idea that we've added to the list and we're super keen to have people come and start as well as the other ideas. Nice. I will let you know in a few days if that's actually true. <laughs> and then 
Very last question, Sam, uh, which is where can people find you and your work online? Contact, the best way to contact is through the Charity Entrepreneurship website, uh, charityentrepreneurship.com. Uh, and people from the Charity Entrepreneurship team uh, will be at EAG conferences in London, Oxford, and Boston. Uh, uh, so those are the best ways to get in touch. Awesome. Sam Hilton, thanks so much. Thank you. That was Sam Hilton on charity entrepreneurship and long-termist policy. As always, you can find the write-up at hearthisidea.com forward slash episodes forward slash Hilton. There you'll find links to all the books and articles mentioned in the interview alongside a full transcript of our conversation. A big thanks also to our producer, Jason Cottrebill, uh, for editing this episode and making us sound good. You're awesome, man. If you're enjoying this podcast, the best gift that you can give us is to leave a review or comment to wherever you're listening to this, be that Apple Podcasts, Spotify, whatever. We know that your time is valuable, but reviews really help us learn how we can improve the show and also get to the algorithm to recommend us to more listeners. You can also send guest suggestions, questions, and whatever else to feedback at hearthisidea.com. Thanks very much for listening. <laughs>